0: listening to ohio v the world an
1: ohio history podcast the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the buckeye state subscribe to the show on itunes and stitcher don't forget to rate and review us join the conversation now at facebook now here's your host alex hasty
2: Welcome back everybody. It's season six of Ohio versus the world, an American history podcast. So excited to bring you another great season of Ohio and American history content and show news. We have joined the evergreen podcast network. Uh, you can visit them at evergreenpodcast.com. They've been so awesome to work with and they're only going to increase our listenership, our reach. There's a bunch of great shows on their network, a truly national podcast network. Sports, history, lifestyle, literature, movies, there's all kinds of channels. Uh, So go explore, and we'll be hyping some of our fellow history pods. I think we are now the eighth history show to be on the network. Again, go to evergreenpodcast.com. You can also go to evergreenpodcast.com and go listen to our last five seasons, 70-plus episodes. Uh, You don't have to listen in any particular order. Uh, If there's a topic that interests you, go listen to it and see what we've been doing in the last five years on Ohio vs the world. To all our old listeners, great to have you back. You'll notice no real changes to our well researched entertaining history. To our new listeners, welcome. Go rate and review the show. Follow us on Facebook, uh Instagram at Ohio v the World podcast. We're on Twitter at Ohio v the World. And this show is an American history uh show, but it every episode has an Ohio connection. I'm based out of Columbus, Ohio, the capital here in the Buckeye State. I love this city. Uh, now the fourteenth largest city in the nation. And I love the state of Ohio, but don't think we're just talking about Ohio. And this. Our aim is really to create the best history podcast, this side of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Today we're talking about Akron, Ohio native Judy Resnick, a truly great Ohioan American hero. Judy was the second American woman in space, the first Jewish American woman, but she didn't care about any of that. She was an astronaut. The male, female, first, second, that stuff was irrelevant to her. She was here to do a job and do it better than anybody else, and she did. We'll sit down with Helene Norrant, her oldest cousin, to talk about her remarkable life growing up in Akron, joining NASA, and going to space. But you can't talk about Judy without talking about her ill-fated flight and the Challenger disaster in 1986. We just reached the 35th anniversary. It's one of my first memories, and we'll discuss the circumstances that led to that disaster with Stephen Leckhart, the co-director and creator of the excellent Netflix documentary series Challenger, The Final Flight, Uh, came out last year really good and and we'll sit down with columbia university professor of sociology author of the award-winning book challenger launch decision we'll talk with dr diane Vaughn. she was a treat to speak with and really turned out that we had a lot more in common than we thought challenger is one of those pearl harbor jfk 9-11 moments where you remember where you were when you heard about it a national tragedy caused the death of seven american heroes including the subject of today's episode, Judy Resnick. We'll look at the causes of the Challenger disaster, the organizational issues within NASA that contribute to this tragedy, and we'll debunk some of those common misconceptions about the great question about Challenger. Was the loss of the shuttle and its seven astronauts avoidable? Special thanks also goes out to our friend Eric Hall, the great guitar player from the popular Ohio band Red Wanting Blue. He provides most of the music from today's episode, uh, with his super cool new side project, Tick, Tick, Tick. Uh, you can check out their debut EP uh, by going to tick-tick-tick.bandcamp.com I uh, really appreciate Eric letting us share his music with you, and it really fits our 1980s vibe to a T in this episode. Great to be back with our army of listeners to bring you one of the most researched and best episodes we've done all time. We always bring it when it comes to a season premiere. So it's episode one, Judy Resnick vs. The World. misconception we're going to debunk today is about who actually saw the Challenger disaster live. Everyone claims to have seen this historic flight because NASA was sending the first citizen astronaut, a teacher, Krista McAuliffe, into space. It was very highly publicized historic shuttle flight, I think it's the 25th shuttle flight, it happens on January 28th, 1986. But it wasn't actually shown live. It's a figment of our national imagination. But where it was seen live was in the auditoriums and classrooms across this country. I was attending an elementary school. I only attended for one year. I was in kindergarten, and we were one of the schools that was going to watch Krista McCall's two classes. She was going to teach from space. I was probably too young to be one of the actual students who would you know, watch her classes the next couple of days, but we were all shuttled off to the gymnasium to watch the flight. And it's really my first experience with death. It was also the first brush with death for our first guest, Stephen Leckhart. Stephen was the co-director, co-writer of Challenger... Final Flight, the great docuseries on Netflix, came out in 2020. Go watch it as soon as you're done with this episode. Four parts, truly amazing work that they did. But Steve and I are about the same age and had a very similar experience with Challenger.
3: I was, I think, in kindergarten. So I'm just old enough to remember it, but just young enough to not understand anything. I didn't understand what had happened. The teacher had turned off the TV in that moment and told us to go outside and play. No one ever talked to me about deaf no one ever talked to me about what had happened and I also just had no clue about the shuttle I mean I, I knew about it. it I had toys I had with posters you know I it, I it loomed large on my childhood but I never understood really the background you know in the course of making the series and just mining my own memories um, I just realized how terrifying it was and it and it's why you know decades later we still talk about it.
2: The subject of today's show, Judy Resnick, uh, was born April 5th, 1949 in Akron, Ohio. She would have been 72 years old this month. And our second guest is her cousin, Helene Noren. Helene was Judy's oldest cousin, and we talk about their family and their weekly Friday night family dinners in Cleveland. Helene was so great to join us and talk about her remarkable family's experience as new immigrants to America. They all seem to go on to do such great things, a lot of doctors, and obviously the star of the family, Judy, who would become an astronaut.
1: So she and I were first cousins. Uh, My dad was the oldest of um, his generation. And then I'm the oldest child of my father. So I'm her oldest cousin. And uh, the whole family was expected (laughs) to be at our Friday night dinners. And I have such wonderful fond memories of those. Uh, evening. No, those were in Cleveland. Actually, um, her father was the only one that wound up in Akron. Everybody else stayed in Cleveland. I was 14 years older than Judy. When i married, we moved to Akron because my husband was an audiologist, as am I and my son. Her father was an optometrist, and um, we shared office space in Akron, so that was why we moved to Akron. But Judy was... um, Let's see, I think she was 15 when we moved here, because I went to her sweet 16 birthday party. I remember that. The family was, um, I think, in some ways, a real typical immigrant family. And the children, they were really first-generation Americans, we we children. The family background of having had that immigrant experience was always a, a kind of a maybe subtle and not-so-subtle influence on all of us. Yes. Um, I know that, um, especially with my grandfather, who was a very strong patriarch figure, the whole family had, and I think it stemmed from my grandparents, a, a really um, high regard for education, and I think that really was a strong influence on on everybody, not just on Judy, but the entire family. Uh, that education was the backbone of how you would um, be a good American.
2: Judy went to Akron Firestone High School. I know we have listeners from Firestone High. Judy was a star student and one of the school's most notable alumni. She's genius-level smart, but she's also super funny, personable, down-to-earth, and beautiful. We talked to Helene Noren about her cousin,
1: Judy was a proud of the Akron School System, which at the time was a really excellent school system. It's still good, but it was outstanding in those days. Um, she just loved to read. I mean, she could read before kindergarten, and she could do simple math before kindergarten. But um, she was just a real serious student, and um, she went to uh, an elementary school, which uh, in recent years, after after the disaster, they re, they rebuilt the school and renamed it the uh, Judith A. Resnick Community Learning Center. And I drive past there every day. So that's something we're really proud of. But she went to, um, uh, again, Akron Junior High School and Firestone High School. Um, she was really good in school. She belonged to... Um, a chemistry and math club. She was a national honors society, And she was a valedictorian in her graduating class. But actually, so was her brother, her younger brother, when he went through Firestone. She did get a perfect SAT score, 1600. Not wow. shabby, right? The other thing about Judy, I think people only think of her as, you know, this bright, scholarly person. But she was a lot of fun. Yeah. She had a great sense of humor beautiful smile. Oh my gosh. Could light up a room. She loved Tom Selleck. <laughs> Which sounds funny, but you know, in those days.
2: She she loved Tom really Selleck, you said.
1: Yeah, yeah. She even I think on I think it was on Discovery she had a picture of him up or she had a picture of him on her locker, I remember, in at NASA.
2: I grew up with the space shuttle. In nineteen eighty one, just a few weeks after I was born. The first space shuttle flight was made. Huge crowds, huge expectations, and a huge price tag. But this was the future of space travel, a reusable shuttle that eventually makes space travel something all of us could make experience. At least that was the hope. We talked with Stephen Leckhart about the birth of the shuttle program. Shuttle's first flight is covered so well in his film, Challenger, The Final Flight. Uh, and you, again, check that docuseries out on Netflix. Stephen talks to us about the start of the shuttle program and how quickly it became apparent that they wouldn't be able to meet their ambitious flight schedule.
3: I mean, they had a schedule to ramp up, right? And so I think they oversold how quickly they would be able to ramp them up and how quickly they'd be able to do this sort of reusable uh, hardware that they had developed. So, you know, when we used to send during like Mercury and Apollo, it would be a rocket that would go up with a little capsule and the whole rocket would go up. And then the capsule would detach and get into space, and the whole rocket would go into the ocean, and you would never see it again. And <laughs> it was just it was just a you know a one and done. Then the capsule would come crash landing back in the ocean, and of course there'd be a parade, and they were heroes. The idea to do the shuttle meant that you could take the whole the whole thing, the whole ship. I mean, I can't even tell you the scale that compared to the capsule was massive, and that entire plane would go up. The rockets would detach and fall in the ocean. The, rock, the rockets would float, and they would actually take them after the launch, and they would recover them, reprocess them, ship them across the uh, U.S. back to Utah, and then the same rockets, the same hardware that had launched a shuttle, you know, a couple months earlier, were t- turned around to then launch a new one. And part of the challenge became, well if you examine the inside of one of those rockets during Mercury and Apollo, they never really had a proper, they never tried to do that. So they didn't really understand just how many times you could use the thing. What did it really, what did it mean if it was safe? So they build in all these redundancies, you know, things in duplicate and triplicate so that it it basically fail safes and, you know, it, it worked, it worked a lot, but it didn't always work. And so that was really kind of the problem. And there was no, precedent set to really understand, well, how many times can you reuse that rocket? And well, if you have a little bit of burn through, is that okay? Is it safe? Is it not safe? Well, didn't explode. So are we good? Or are we not good? And no. that's where you start to argue over the numbers. And I'm not an engineer, but you, know, you have different people analyzing numbers. If you ask 10 people, you might get 10 opinions. So making the decision of the final word and the final opinion is really complicated. And I think that's why in this case, there's no, there are no villains, right? Um, nobody wanted something bad to happen. Nobody wanted anyone to die.
2: We're joined again by Helene Norrin, Judy Resnick's cousin, and she talks about Judy's career in engineering, which really takes off after she leaves Akron Firestone High School. We talked to her about Judy's career in the 1970s.
1: She started off um, in Pittsburgh's Carnegie Tech, which is now called Carnegie Mellon University, And she majored in, there she majored in computer math, electrical engineering, and biomedical engineering. And she got her bachelor's degree there. See, she went on for her master's at the University of Pennsylvania. And then she worked, um, uh, got a job at RCA in Virginia. She continued her work on her master's at the University of Maryland. And that's where she got her PhD. She worked as a biomedical engineer for um, at NIH, the National Institutes of Health, in their um, I think it was a laboratory of neurophysiology. And she worked there from I think 1974 to 1977. And then in 77, I remember when she moved. She moved to Redondo Beach, California. And she worked for Xerox Corporation there and became a senior systems engineer, I think was her position there. And that's actually when she discovered that NASA was looking for new recruits, and they were looking for um, scientists, and not gender specific. And then she found out that they were also going to take their first women. And so I think that really piqued her interest.
2: Judy applies in 1977 to become an astronaut with NASA. Helene talks about her selection process, how exciting that must have been for the Resnick family and Akron, Ohio, in general. She talks with us about Judy getting picked and how she even consulted another famous Ohioan, John Glenn. We've done a Neil Armstrong episode in the past. That was our season three premiere. In 2019, we dropped one of our favorite episodes about the great American hero, John Glenn from New Concord, Ohio, and later a, a resident here of Columbus. Get on our show page again at evergreenpodcast.com or our website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com, and go back and find John Glenn vs. the World, what an extraordinary life he lived. Helene Noren, Judy's cousin, talks to us about Judy Resnick being selected as one of the first female astronauts in American history.
1: Typical Judy, she did her due diligence. She went and she talked to John Glenn to find out specifically what NASA was looking for. Um, and then she applied and and she put herself on a like a fitness routine. I mean, she was always fit. She was never, I mean, tiny. She was really a short girl. But she started running and eating more healthfully. She had her brother who was, I think he was in med school at the time, but he, he was taking her blood pressure all the time. She wanted her, him to monitor her. <laughs> But um, in, uh, I think it was January of 78, uh, NASA took uh, 35 new astronaut candidates, and six of them were women, and Judy was one of the six. She just wanted to be one of the astronauts doing her job, and that was really important to her. It, it upset her when people tried to direct interviews and so forth in the other direction. Um, that was not Judy.
2: Judy was part of the NASA class of 1978, a historic class of new NASA astronauts that would fly on the shuttle that was just three years away from launching. Stephen Leckhart in his Netflix Challenger series Final Flight talks about the class of 78 and how historic it really was. We'll play for you an interview Judy did as a new astronaut with Tom Brokaw. Look, I love Tom Brokaw. He's great. uh, And I'm sure he'd agree this is not one of the most well-done interviews in his illustrious career. But it just shows how sexist the world used to be. This is in my lifetime, so so don't let people tell you we haven't come a long way. Because, yikes, the clip following Stephen, uh, with with Judy and Tom Brokaw, is incredibly awkward, and it's no fault of her own.
3: All the first astronauts were. This is the first time in history you had women and people of color joining, you know, the astronaut corps, and how that was a huge deal at the time, and it was a tectonic shift for the agency and for the country, and you know. Four of those astronauts wound up on Challenger, right? Prior to the class of 78, um, all astronauts were white men and they were fighter pilots, test pilots. They came from the Navy, they came from the military, um, or they were just test pilots, uh, one or the other. And that was it. And so When the shuttle was conceived, it was conceived to do really big projects in space. That's why it was so large. I mean, it's basically just a semi-truck. It's all hollow and empty on the inside because it's supposed to bring up satellites and payloads. And the whole idea was living and working in space. And so, in order to do that, you need people that don't just know how to fly jets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You need you need doctors, you need scientists, you need earth scientists, medical doctors, you need engineers. I mean, there's just a it opened the door to bringing people of different disciplines up there to collaborate together. And I think at the same time, if you look at what was happening in the '70s, as far as the women's movement, we were post civil rights era. Um, and there was a there was a big push um, nationwide to just open diversity, to make diversity a priority. And so all of that coalesced in such a way that now you didn't just need fighter pilots. You There were many, many fighter pilots in that class, but you also needed them to partner up with different kinds of astronauts. And it also opened the door for women to be a part of that. It opened the door for people of color to be a part of that. And so it all sort of coalesced in this group of 35 astronauts. For 20 years in this
4: country, the word astronaut automatically meant a man. But that's changed. In fact, beginning in 1978, NASA began accepting the first women astronauts. There are now eight out of the 81 members of the astronaut corps based in Houston. One of the first half dozen to be accepted is Judy Resnick, now 32 years old, a native of Akron, the holder of a doctorate in electrical engineering from the University of Maryland. She is single, she plays the piano, and she's a runner. Were you a tomboy when you were a kid? No. You weren't, and you, t- and you took to this right away. You like it.
1: It was fun.
4: What's the best part about being an astronaut?
1: Uh, everything.
4: What happens when you meet a man who's not in the space program and doesn't know who you are, and you say, I'm an astronaut? Does he say, hey, you're too cute to be an astronaut. Come on, <laughs> little lady, you can't be an astronaut.
1: I just tell him I'm an engineer.
4: <laughs> you don't tell him you're an astronaut?
1: Not unless he asks.
4: Are there discussions in Houston about what happens when men and women go into space for the first time together?
1: The dis- there's not discussions among us.
4: Yeah, there, are, there aren't any discussions or preparation for the social impact of that, and, well, you know, we're going to be talking about it, after all, if you're up there in some kind of a prolonged space mission, and there may be even relationships that will develop between men and women.
1: Well, I think from our point of view, uh, since we're so used to working together professionally that we look at each other as professional colleagues on the ground and in orbit and whatever, and, and we view it that way,
5: period.
4: Do you think the time will come when there will be romance in the outer space, though?
5: Oh, gee, I really couldn't tell
2: you that. Judy Resnick, nice to have you with us this morning. Judy Resnick quickly distinguishes herself as a top-rate astronaut from the class of 78. She's going to be one of the first class members to go to space. She excelled at everything. We talked with Helene Noren about Judy's training with NASA and how quickly she adapted to the extremely challenging program. Um,
1: Well, it was pretty vigorous, obviously, and um, she just threw herself into it. You know, anything she pursued, she had this passion for it, and um, the thing she told me about was she really loved, at, um, in Texas, I guess she was at Ellington Air Force Base, and she did flight training there early in her astronaut career, and she loved flying, and I think later, if, if things had gone differently, she probably would have done more with flying, because she just absolutely loved it. Probably the major part of her training was um, rehearsing um, mission tasks and uh, tasks and parts that were real specific to what she would be participating in in the mission. They were rigorous. You know, they would go over and over potential problems that might arise in different scenarios. And, you know, I did ask her, this was way back, if there was any element of fear that things could go wrong. And she and every other astronaut that I ever had any contact with, they used the word redundancy all the time. Safety (laughs) measures, they just felt there were so many safety measures that were in place and were redundant. I think they really didn't fear that anything would go wrong.
2: But there were problems with the shuttle. It's space travel, after all, and it's one of the riskiest things you can do, even today. You look at SpaceX and the explosions they've had, you're riding on two of the world's largest rockets into orbit. A lot of stuff can go wrong. Our third guest is the Columbia University professor, Dr. Diane Vaughn, sociologist and author. Diane wrote the award-winning book, Challenger Launch Decision, in 1996 on the 10th anniversary of Challenger. Her book delves into the history of those technological and, more importantly, organizational problems that led to the Challenger disaster. Diane coined a term that is now widely used. Uh, she coined it in that book that, that you see all over the world of sociology and looking at organizational decision-making, and even human relationships, the concept of the normalization of deviance. We do it all the time in our lives without noticing it. We do things that are risky, but there's no consequences uh, for some time. So we keep doing it until it becomes normalized or until a disaster strikes. Dr. Vaughn talks to us about the normalization of deviance and how it was a central issue in Challenger.
5: The normalization of deviance refers to the fact that an anomaly or some deviation from expected occurrence happens, but nothing bad follows it. And so uh, they continue to accept it. And not only that, as in the space shuttle program, the flaw that actually brought down Challenger they accepted more and more. It means that it was organizationally propelled forward. And they, and part of that had to do with the production pressure they were feeling. As one of the engineers said to me, it's like losing your virginity. Once you have done it, you can't go back. He said, if we had told them to stop because we wanted to stop the program, because we wanted to check on this, they would said. But it was performing like this before, and you said it was okay. And now suddenly you're saying it's not okay. Were you lying then, or are you lying now? So that kept them going forward. It seemed every time there was a problem, they fixed it, but then there was a different problem.
2: The shuttle program is a modern marvel. Don't get me wrong, it's amazing. NASA's amazing. And up until Challenger, they're probably the most revered government agency that we had. The shuttle's not making twenty to thirty launches a year. There's constant delays, little problems that they're overlooking and flying with anyways. Dr. Vaughn talks about the normalization of deviance that was real. This amazing set of vehicles is being used to try and pay for itself. All the satellites we depend on today telecommunications g p s all that was happening in the early to mid eighties. That's what these shuttles were doing. uh sure, they're bringing things up they're you know they're taking care of later the international Space Station, Hubble. All this great stuff, but they're also doing things for the military. Diane Vaughan, author of Challenger Launch Decision, talks to us about the shuttle and NASA becoming a business.
5: Uh, the Apollo program had been shut down and all the money from the space agency might have used to start a new program was actually going to the military. So they proposed the idea of the space shuttle program the basis being originally that it would be like the space bus going back and forth to an international space station and people would eventually be able to travel and so on but there wasn't the money to do that and so the only way they could build this kind of program and nasa go forward was to make compromises and one of the compromises that was that they would be self-supporting. That is, they would take payloads, literally being paid for load by the defense department or uh, scientific experiments in space or something like that. And they figured in the beginning that they could make 60 launches a year and pay for themselves. But they ended up making like only nine launches a year. It began operating more like a business. Once you built an animal like that, you have to keep feeding it.
2: Our guest, Steven Leckhart's roughly the same age as me, same generation. I don't know quite what we are. Everyone says I'm on the oldest side of the millennials or the youngest member of Generation X. I've heard the term exennials. whatever. We're the children of the 80s and the 90s. Stephen has got a great new documentary that just came out a couple weeks ago on HBO called The Day Sports Stood Still, about sports and the pandemic and how everything stopped and how everything started up again. Amazing interviews and video on that one. He also did the fantastic Muhammad Ali documentary, What's My Name, from 2019. But we asked him how he picked Challengers as his next project and how in association with J.J. Abrams' production company, Bad Robot, he was able to get his four-part documentary, Challenger, The Final Flight, onto Netflix.
3: It was 2016, and I was having a conversation with um, Glenn Zipper, one of our executive producers on the project. And Glenn is one of the first documentary producers I ever met, and we would worked together at that point on two movies that he produced and I wrote. And um, he knew I had aspirations to direct, and so we were sort of talking about what that project might look like with the intention of the two of us co-directing. And we we just started spitballing ideas, and because he is also kind of roughly in my age bracket, or we're around the same generation, a lot of our reference points were in the '80s. And I can't remember any of the specific ideas that we sort of threw out and said no to, because the second he said Challenger, I just said absolutely, that's that's the one we should do that. Over the course of 2016, it just became abundantly clear that there was a very deep story that hadn't quite been captured that. The story had been told in science-y shows, you shows, know, Discovery Channel kind of pieces that are great and really do a, a wonderful post-mortem analysis of the science. Nobody had really captured the personal story. And we also kind of were looking around and realizing that given how long ago it was, there were only so many people who had lived through the story that were still around. And so we, we'd had this sense of a, a, a purpose and a ticking clock that if we didn't go out and interview some of these folks as soon as we could, they may not be around to really tell us their full story. A bigger bigger part too is we also realized that everybody to some degree remembers, if you were alive, you remember Krista McAuliffe, you remember it's the teacher flight, but you don't remember that there were six other human beings that lost their lives and they all had stories. They all had families. They all had backgrounds that were tremendous. And we all started to look at this. It just felt like, okay, this should be a series. It's not a movie. And then we finally brought it into Netflix after Bad Robot got attached. Um, and I've never been a part of a pitch that was that. Brought it in, said, here's what we want to do. And they basically just said, great, we would love to do this with you. And there was, awesome. it was the, the fastest yes I've ever gotten. And then we spent about a year and a half, you know, making the thing.
2: Challenger, the final flight, Steven's movie does a great job of paying tribute to the Challenger 7. Dick Scoby, Michael Smith, Judy Resnick, Ellison Anazuka, Ron McNair, Greg Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. We asked Stephen what it was like to profile Judy because she was a private person. We felt honored to be able to speak with Helene, a close family member, because the family doesn't really talk in public that much about Judy. Now, they found other meaningful ways to honor her memory, and we'll discuss those later in the episode, but Judy's featured in the Netflix series, and we asked Stephen what he found out about her and what he was so impressed with when it comes to Judy Resnick.
3: All the other astronauts were married, And so we had subjects who could talk about their private lives and what it was like to move in with them, you know, move to Houston, um, what they were like as people and also falling into this group of people. Judy started the program and she was single. Um, Her private life is not something that's, you know, been very publicized. So what we ultimately decided about Judy was that all the people who were like her adopted family as part of NASA would be better, they would be in the better position to sort of speak to what her life was like. There were a lot of pieces that we uncovered about her, stories that we heard that unfortunately we weren't able to sort of weave into the film. Um, but she was a very talented piano player and yeah. she had a pia- piano in her home in Houston. She used to play the piano. You know, people would come to her house and she'd play the piano. And I, I, there's just something about understanding the dexterity that it takes to play the piano and it is a very mathematical instrument. And at the same time, watching her work the robotic arm, which you see in the footage, she was known for being incredibly precise with the robotic arm. And so if you kind of think about her as a human being, it all kind of makes sense. But she's just a really striking person and had clearly a great personality. I think you can see it in the archival footage, the waves of sexism that all the women faced she, she handled herself like a true pro. She really didn't let it fluster her. And if you think about what it means to be an astronaut, to fly in space and to operate under pressure, it tracks. She was one person that I, I very much identified and really liked the idea of, of weaving her into the series and making her a known entity. And you know, as one of the first female astronauts, she deserves her place in history.
2: And as we discussed, Judy was among the top in her class. She's chosen as the second American woman in space, a year following uh, after Sally Ride's flight in 1983. Judy will go up in August 1984 on the maiden voyage of the space shuttle Discovery. The flight was delayed two months, even was the first to ever have a launch abort. at T-minus six seconds. They, they stopped the flight six seconds before liftoff because there was an issue. But she does go up and has a very successful six-day mission on Discovery. Helene Norn was there, celebrating with all the Resnicks. It's this flight that they choose to think of when they think of Judy and her career at NASA, when she was a mission specialist on the first flight of the shuttle Discovery.
1: For Discovery, she was um, officially a mission specialist. That, that was the flight that we all talk about and we're so excited about. And for, I think there were a total of 25 of us that flew down to Florida and were there for, you know, for the liftoff. What, oh my gosh, so exciting. We went down, and, oh, it was like a family uh, reunion down there. It was just wonderful. We're all so excited. There were aunts and uncles and cousins, and it was great. And we did get invited to a couple um, uh, parties and so forth, and it it was just wonderful how embracing everybody was to one another. But, uh, you know, then the astronauts were um kept in isolation ahead of time. So we were partying without Judy at the time. This was a, I think Discovery was a seven, seven day flight. They were doing, they were going to launch a uh, communication satellite then, and they were going to do, she, I know, was involved in the solar array um, experiments. Uh, it was designed to, <laughs> now it sounds like such, you know, we take it for granted, but it was to collect solar energy for future power use for when they would have, uh, you know, need for it in the future. It it was really such an exciting time then. And that's, I think the family kind of dwells on when we talk about Judy. We talk about the Discovery flight because the rest is so painful.
6: We have SRB ignition and we have liftoff. Liftoff of Mission 41D,
4: the first flight of the Orbiter Discovery, and the shuttle has cleared the tower.
1: This morning, the solid rocket boosters fell away from their cargo right on schedule, enabling the newest member of the shuttle team to head for orbit. And in a speech to NASA employees outside Washington, President Reagan used today's success to link his re-election campaign to the promise of space.
0: And as American technology transforms the great black night of space into a bright new world of opportunities, we can use that knowledge to create a new American opportunity society here at home.
1: Astronaut Judy Resnick flexed the shuttle's new mechanical arm and said it worked beautifully. ...and here's the
0: discovery. Okay, as you can see, we had a good deploy. Uh, Right on time, I've got the... Then
1: the upper stage fired perfectly, sending the satellite into orbit and earning NASA $10 million. With today's twin successes, NASA can now tell its customers it's back in business, ready to deliver their products and take their money.
2: Judy Resnick's mission in 1984 is a success, but a few months later, there's a flight that's determined to to have had a close call. It's a close call with the O-rings and the solid rocket boosters, the SRBs as they're known. They're the two rockets that power the shuttle into that exit velocity it needs to climb fast enough to leave Earth. Then after about two minutes of powering the shuttle, they fall off and they're retrieved by NASA when they fall into the ocean. These giant rockets are built and then reassembled in Utah, They're shipped in parts, and those sections are sealed together by what are basically rubber O-rings. These SRBs, they're the most powerful solid rocket motors ever flown at the time. If the O-rings fail, then this rocket propellant leaks out, the entire vehicle can explode. They launched at 53 degrees on that flight in 1985, the coldest launch on record in Florida. The O-rings, which there's two of them on each each joint for redundancy, so if the first O-ring failed... Uh, to seal the hot gases the second, would, would back it up. When they recovered the boosters, they noticed that they had the worst blow-by they'd ever seen. And they'd seen some on, on almost every flight, really. But this was showing that even the second O-ring had been charred. The gases had nearly escaped. They didn't know if it was the cold temperatures that were causing the rubber O-rings to get rigid and fail to seal those rocket booster parts properly. But the engineers in Utah at the contractors of a company called Morton Thiokol They're the ones who put the SRBs together. They're concerned. Dr. Diane Vaughn talks about the warning signs of STS-51C, the shuttle Discovery's flight, in January of 1985.
5: You really did your homework. They had their worst O-ring damage on that flight during the coldest temperature that they had experienced. It was cold temperature that affected the performance of Challenger and brought it down. So at at that point, this was a very unusual appearance and the engineers were worried. But as one of the engineers said, you know, that kind of cold temperature at the launch site in Florida is like having a hundred year storm two years in a row. And so we never did any more research on cold temperature. So the night of Challenger, they just didn't have the data. And you would think with... the the January 1985 cold temperature, that they would object. And and so they did. They finally spoke out and said, look, we don't want to go unless the temperature is 54 degrees or better, because that was a breaking point for them.
7: Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast.
2: NASA flew 11 orbital missions in 1985. Not nearly as many say hope, but it's still becoming routine. In Five years in the shuttle program, the public has lost interest. America had a short attention span even back then. NASA was threatening to lose funding as public support dwindled. Steven, in, in the film, plays a great clip of a young Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry's on The Tonight Show doing stand-up. I mean, he looks crazy young, like early 20s. And he's talking about how the shuttle is boring to people now. He suggests in the joke that they could generate greater interest if they sent someone up on a flight that didn't want to go. Like, they have to struggle to get him into the shuttle. Uh, you know, it's pretty funny a little bit. But the public in disinterest is real. They come up with a catchy idea... Let's put a regular person in space. They decide, let's put a teacher in space. They conduct a national search. Stephen's Netflix series breaks down the search really well, this national search for teachers, thousands of applicants. And they decide on a charismatic 37-year-old teacher, a high school social studies teacher from Concord, New Hampshire, Krista McAuliffe. And the public is intrigued, and she set the train with NASA and fly in 1986 on Challenger. We asked Stephen, did adding a regular person like Krista McAuliffe reignite public interest in the shuttle program?
3: You could see it in news. You could see it like in print media. You could see it on, on you know, camera crews and things like that. The weird thing about the space shuttle was that it needed to be routine. They needed to keep up a schedule and show that like a, like a truck going from you know, California to Missouri back and forth and back and forth, shuttling things back and forth, They needed the space shuttle to do the same thing, even though it was so complicated technically and even though it was very dangerous. But they needed it to be routine so that Congress would keep funding it. And so they were ramping up just how quickly the schedule was going to prove that it could be routine. So the more routine it became, the less interested the public became. Because if you're, you know, you do one launch a year, that's really special. You do 10 a year, you've seen one, you've seen them all. And so then the question became, well, how could NASA reinvigorate and make the public excited again? And the idea that someone like you or I could go, and, and quote unquote, normal average person, that was really exciting. You know, they'd already had the first several women go, they'd already had the first people of color go. All of those firsts were very exciting for different reasons. So the idea of sending a civilian let alone a teacher, let alone someone as sort of captivating and as, as just dynamic as Krista, it really did capture the public's imagination in an amazing way. And, and to be honest, had, had, had the mission been a success and the explosion had happened on a different flight without a civilian, I'm not so sure if folks like you and me would have been watching at school. I mean, that's really why so many students were tuned in. And that really feeds into the tragedy of this moment because it had such a a captive live audience.
2: This episode obviously is dedicated to Judy Resnick and the Challenger 7, but we're supposed to have a fourth guest today. We want to dedicate this episode as well to that important player in this story, the head of the Solid Rocket Booster Program at Morton Thiokol, Alan McDonald. Al will play a big role in the rest of our story. We did a pre-interview with him, and we're scheduled to record an interview with him in March. Then he emails us a couple days, two days before the interview, said he's having emergency surgery. He'd have to postpone his interview. He's genuinely sorry, and I told him, hey, it's no big deal. We're praying for your recovery. Unfortunately, Al passed away two days later after he emailed us. He was a great guy, and I wish we would have recorded our pre-interview because he's just so damn interesting. But Stephen talked to us about the importance of getting all these first-hand accounts on the record in his documentary because... Now that 35 years have passed, we're losing folks at the center of the Challenger disaster. And we're losing those important lessons they can give us for the future.
3: Yeah, his passing was um, was obviously really sudden and unexpected. He, he was very healthy. When we went and interviewed him in 2019, Yeah, you know, he he was in the wintertime and he was talking about skiing. You know, when a man is in his 80s and talking about skiing, you know, he's got to be pretty fit. <laughs> um, so that was really unexpected. Um, but even before the project came out, um, Arnie Aldrich, who had worked at NASA, and he's actually the very last person you hear in the film. Um, the last person you see on camera before the epilogue starts, um, he passed away. Um, and there's another subject, um, whose health has declined. Um, I, I don't want to say who it is. It doesn't quite matter, but, um, his health has declined. And when I spoke to him on the phone last year, he couldn't remember having talked to me, um, yeah. and and that was very disturbing. Um, uh, on the one hand, because I just you know I, I have relatives who have um, had memory issues and um, Alzheimer's, and it's a it's just a terrible disease. But when you're also thinking about just the role that this one person plays in the film and the series, and how great um, this person's memory was, and the stories that um, this person brought to the table. Um, to think that that's now gone, right? The fact we captured it is valuable. Um, and usually you don't see that value till years later, but here we are. You know, the series had just come out and already his memory was gone.
2: Judy's chosen for Challenger in 1986, the teacher flight. The public is engrossed with this flight, the crew, the mission. NASA's on the front page again. The flight's set for January 26, 1986, but it's scrubbed the next day because of bad weather. Uh, the forecast, for, anyways, for the weather was bad. that It actually ended up being great weather on that Sunday. I remember Al McDonald saying he was happy it got delayed because it was Super Bowl Sunday, and he got to watch the Bears destroy the Patriots. Really, the first Super Bowl that I remember. The next day is January 27th. It's scheduled to go. They loaded the crew. They filled the external fuel tanks. But there's an issue. It's an issue with, like, an exterior hatched handle, like a door, a door handle, a metal door handle on the crew cabin. It wouldn't screw off like it normally would. A maintenance crew takes their time coming out there. You can watch this on on Steven's documentary. You can use uh, only battery-operated tools on on the shuttle because, you know, you can't have uh, electric, you know, anything. A spark could be devastating with all that fuel everywhere. The crew gets to the launch pad. The batteries are dead. They go to charge them. Then they decide we're just going to use a hacksaw to just, you know, saw this door off. That takes forever. They miss their launch window. The winds kick up. They take the astronauts off the shuttle and place it for another flight tomorrow. It'd be Tuesday, January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. But there's one problem. There's an Arctic chill coming to Florida that night, like a record cold snap. Temperatures in the teens overnight. Anyone listening in Florida can tell you that just doesn't happen. As we talked about the possible bad effect earlier of the cold on those O-rings in the in the nineteen eighty five January flight. NASA and the engineers at Morton Thiokol hold a teleconference, a teleconference that would live in infamy, be analyzed over and over again. Morton Thiokol, the engineers responsible for those two solid rocket boosters, are advising NASA not to fly due to the record cold. We said they had issues when they flew at 53, 54 degrees a year before. Now we're talking about 17, 18, 19 degrees. We asked Stephen Leckard about the teleconference. They do a reenactment in the docuseries, Because it's such a central event in the Challenger story. We'll then hear from our late friend, Al McDonald, about his decision at the teleconference because he was there.
3: The night before is uh, a meeting that took place um, in a teleconference between engineers and executives in Utah um, at Morton Thiokol. Uh, which is the subcontractor that built the solid rocket boosters, which ultimately exploded and caused the demise of the Challenger and the seven astronauts aboard. They had a teleconference the evening before the launch with folks who were down at the Cape in Florida, Um, NASA reps, as well as uh, Al McDonald, who you referenced, who worked for Morton Thiokol. There were no cameras present at the time. There were no photographs taken. It's the moment where you know, the engineers in Utah speak up and say they have concerns. They start going over data. It's it's a very, very long conversation back and forth and back and forth. Um, and ultimately the powers that be did not feel that the data were quote unquote conclusive. And that's really the moment where effectively somebody at Morton Thiokol um, had to sign a piece of paper saying we give the okay to launch.
7: Some uh, uh, fellow from NASA at Marshall said, well, uh, we need that launch recommendation in writing and signed by a uh, uh, Morton call official. I knew who that was supposed to be, me. That's why I was the Cape, I had to prove it. And I did the smartest thing I did in my entire life. I refused to sign the launch recommendation because I didn't understand it, I didn't feel good about it. What happened is that the engineers back in Utah got themselves into a position where they were essentially told to prove it would fail. Now, proving it will fail is a different question than saying it's safe to fly. They could not prove that it would fail.
2: clips from from al's testimony uh following the disaster and and that's from a lecture he did but nasa decides to go forward i've always assumed that this was a stupid decision by nasa made because of the you know the historic nature of the flight they've already delayed twice there's production you know pressures they're trying to make 16 flights in 86 ramp up to like 24 or something the next year but we talk with diane vaughn about nasa's view this contractor is trying to make a sudden change to launch criteria the night before a launch. They don't really have the data to back it up. They think the cold might be a problem. They don't know. Something that would create a huge change in the flight schedule. Diane walks us through why NASA pushes forward after the engineers war they can't fly at this temperature due to the effect on the solid rocket booster O-rings.
5: They In faxing the charts, mostly handwritten, The final chart that said do not launch unless the temperature is 54 degrees or better came at the end and the charts that preceded it were based on data that the people, uh, the management people in other locations and the engineers in other locations had already seen before. So it's coming across one at a time, okay, we've got that, we know that, we know that, we know that. And then the last chart comes and they were shocked. And they were shocked because it meant total change in the program in terms of how many launches they could do a year. They could not, if they affirmed this, they couldn't launch unless the temperature was 54 degrees. And a lot of times it wasn't. It wasn't 19 degrees.
2: Al McDonald raises a stink after the decision to fly. He's got a good point. It's not just the O-rings and the cold weather. He gets there at 6 a.m. the morning of the launch, and he's, like, relieved. He sees these giant icicles hanging off the pad, off the shuttle. It's one of the coldest nights you'll ever see in Cape Canaveral. He knows that the boats at sea, he's staying at the guy's house who's in charge of retrieving the the rocket boosters when they fall off and and, and fall into the ocean. And this storm's creating havoc out at sea. Of course, you know, like we talked about, the cold O-ring problem as well. We hear Al McDonald's testimony of the Rogers Commission about why he tried to stop the flight.
6: In fact, I uh, made the direct statement that if anything happened to this launch, I uh, told him I sure wouldn't want to be the person that had to stand in front of a board of inquiry to explain why I launched this outside of the uh, qualification of the solid rocket motor or any shuttle system. And I said if I were the launch director, I'd cancel this launch for three reasons, not just one. first one being the concern of the cold O-rings that we just discussed. But there were two others i just left uh, Carver Kennedy's house in Titusville, Florida, and he's responsible not only for stacking of the SRMs, he's responsible for the retrieval operations. And he had been in communication uh, with someone that uh, was at Hangar AF, I believe, that contacts the booster recovery ships at sea. And they had told him that the uh, booster recovery ships were in an absolute survival mode, was how they put it that they were in seas that were high as 30 feet. Uh, they were, there was winds at 50 knots sustained, gusting to 70 knots, uh, pitching the boat as much as 30 degrees. Uh, they even felt the rough seas may have damaged some of the retrieval equipment on the back of the ship. Uh, they were steering directly into the wind, heading for shore at about 3 knots, and they have been doing that for some time. There's no way that they would be able to support an early morning launch because they wouldn't be in the recovery area. I also said that uh, the third reason for not launching is uh, the formation of ice. I knew the uh, sound suppression system's a a water system, and I felt there would probably be a lot of ice around there, and I'm no expert on all these matters, but I do feel that uh, there may be a chance of that changing the acoustics, may be a problem with debris, may have some effect on the structures. I didn't know, but I didn't think it was prudent to launch under that kind of a condition. I was told that, you know, these weren't really my problems, and I really shouldn't uh, concern myself with these. Uh, But I said, you know,
2: all three of these together should be more than sufficient to cancel the launch. But ice crews work all morning. They knock all all this ice off, or at least most of it. The crew's loaded on the Challenger. And at 11.38 on January 28, 1986, Challenger lifts off. And there appears to be no issues. But at seventy-three seconds into flight, the Shuttle Challenger breaks apart, and all seven members of the crew are lost.
0: And liftoff, liftoff of the twenty-fifth Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared
4: the tower. Challenger now heading down range. Engines throttling up, three engines now at 104%. Challenger, go with throttle up. Challenger, go with throttle up. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are looking at... uh, Checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point.
1: always remember where they were when it happened. It's like when Kennedy was assassinated or on September 11th, people just, it's in their minds what was going on when they learned about a tragedy. I actually was at work in my Medina office, and I was with a patient. Uh, my younger brother, well, younger, all of my siblings are younger than I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my brother, Michael, called. Uh, he was living in California at the time, and he was, I. and the office had a TV, but I was busy, and we didn't have the TV on, and I'm glad we didn't, but um, he called from California, and um, my receptionist, interrupted me and said my brother said that he had to talk with me and I I, you know I I get chills remembering he just said to me Helene I think you have to sit down and I knew but just by the tone in his voice that it wasn't going to be good news but I honestly didn't think of the shuttle and when he, he was telling me what had happened and as he was telling me this my husband and the office manager from our Akron office came in they had driven in from Akron because they wanted to be there when you know when I found out and they knew that I wouldn't be able to drive back to Akron I I was just too upset and when I got home my uncle was calling from from Florida and um, he was obviously devastated it was it was sort of disbelief and numbness and such sadness so you know, the, I think the whole country mourned that, yeah. that tragedy. You know, it wasn't just, you know, a personal loss for the family. It was a loss for our country.
2: It's a national tragedy. The country's consumed by the grief. We'd never lost astronauts in flight. It's very brave of Helene to share her remembrance of when she found out about her cousin's death with us. Talking with her, you know, it's still painful even 35 years later. We appreciate her her sharing that. I think it's important, and immediately the media and NASA are working to determine what happened after a few days of reviewing the film. They see this plume, this flame coming out of the right aft solid rocket booster a few seconds before the vehicle is destroyed. The engineers and Al McDonald's worst fears have been confirmed. the o-rings didn't seal the gas leaked out, ignited a chain reaction that destroyed the shuttle. A presidential commission is formed weeks later by Ronald Reagan to investigate and it's safe to say that NASA is not being entirely forthcoming with what it knew and what it had been warned about in that infamous pre-flight teleconference. We talked with Stephen Leckert, was there a cover-up for Challenger?
3: So I never used the word cover-up, but that's that's effectively the the words that were used by some of the interview subjects we um, we talked to. I I would probably choose to use a word more like obfuscate. <laughs> it's kind of like semantics. Um, but a cover-up is probably fair. I mean, I think they were they were in meetings not being forthright about what had happened the night before. They didn't mention that Morton Thiokol had pushed back that night before. And of course, that seems like relevant information. And when that became to light, it blew the cover off of everything. It changed everything. It's a tragedy when seven people die and it's, you effectively have blood on your hands. What do you do, right? How do you choose to handle that? And so I I think ultimately there were decisions made by certain individuals not to come right out and say, yeah, the night before everybody was worried. And that ultimately is what um, created, I think, quite a scandal at the time
4: i might mention one of the major concerns which has been voiced both this morning and this afternoon is the concern about low temperatures on january 28th the day the challenger was launched there were icy conditions at the launch pad however nasa is insisting as it has insisted before that the cold temperatures in no way created a safety concern for the shuttle or for its astronauts aboard
2: the rogers commission like we said is formed by president reagan Uh, William Rogers, former Secretary of State, Attorney General, uh, he's the chairman. Neil Armstrong from Wapakoneta, Ohio, you can go back and listen to our pod about the first man to walk on the moon from 2018, he's the vice chairman. Al McDonald is there at the hearings. NASA's in the middle of telling the commission about the accident, but they say that the engineers gave the go-ahead, and look here, we have this launch proceed from Morton Thiokol. There's no mention of the engineers' attempt to stop the launch the night before. Al McDonald's heard enough and I wish he was here to tell you himself about what he did next, because it's pretty brave. He stands up, he walks in front of the commission, and he tells them, we advise them not to launch due to the temperature. Rogers' commission shocked. Al McDonald becomes the whistleblower on the Challenger disaster. We'll then play you clips of Chairman William Rogers, uh, NASA administrators in the weeks to follow. Alan McDonald's bombshell about the teleconference the night before launch.
7: I said, well, I happen to be the director of the Solid Rocket Motor Project for Morton Thackhall. He said, would you come down here on the floor and repeat what I think I heard? Because if I heard what I think I heard, this will be in litigation for years to come. My life changed when he said that. Because then I knew who was going to be in the middle of all this litigation for years to come. Me.
4: Did you ever have an experience where all the engineers voted one way and management voted the other? That wasn't the case here. Well, what was the case here? But My question is, did any of the engineers change their minds? And if so, which ones? Well, let's see. I I would say then that... uh, Look at the list here. Do you remember any other occasion when the contractor recommended against launch, and the, that you persuaded them that they were wrong and changed, had them change their mind? Uh, no, sir. You'll remember that I did say at one point that we thought the decision-making process may be flawed. I believe I'm speaking for the whole commission when I say that we think it is flawed.
2: Our guest, Stephen Leckhart, the co-director and and creator of of Challenger, the final flight on Netflix, they interviewed William Lucas. They interviewed everybody, but they interviewed William Lucas, director of the NASA Space Center. Lucas says in the interview that if he had all the same information, that he would make the exact same decision to launch. I was taken aback. I was like, are are you kidding? But the more I researched this, you start to realize, you know, did he have a point? did they actually make the, the wrong decision? I mean, clearly they did. But at the time, did they make the wrong decision? We talked to Stephen Leckert about William Lucas doubling down in his documentary.
3: His doubling down and saying, I would still make the same decision with all the information I had is about going back to the data. From his perspective, the data were not conclusive. And we all um, accept that the shuttle had lots of issues and problems. I mean, if you if you... Dig into the paperwork, which we did. The tiles were a problem, noted for long periods of time, and the tiles were actually a bigger concern to them than these O-rings. Um, and the tiles ultimately, you, you know, contributed completely to what happened with Columbia um, in the early two thousands. And so, my guess is, from if I had to guess, his point is, is that they had ma- they had made an informed decision based on what they thought were the best data available to them at the time. And therefore, yes, hindsight is 2020. but at that point in time, knowing what he knew, he, they, he felt that they did make the right decision. And he, it's worth noting, he was not in the teleconference. He wasn't in that room. And so this is where like the question of like humanity and technology becomes really complicated because if you're in that room and you can hear just how upset somebody is and how forceful they are about their worries and concerns, maybe that colors how you might feel about it. But the data are still the data. There's no emotion to the data. So for a man who wasn't in the room, didn't hear how somebody else, how upset they were, and all he heard was, you know, through the chain, maybe there was some resistance, but they ultimately signed it. Well, how many times before a launch has anyone ever been upset or worried or concerned? I mean, that's kind of just space travel. The very first Apollo mission, you know, caught fire on the pad and people died. And so I think for somebody who had that legacy of we've been around here for years and years and years and we have lost people and this stuff does happen. Um I think he I think that's coloring the answer.
2: According to Diane Vaughn, Lucas has a point, you know, for saying he launched at the circumstances for the same obviously hindsight's 2020 it doesn't mean that he would launch knowing what happened, but Diane starts writing her book, Challenger Launch Decision and realizes that this agreed-upon history of the event is wrong. NASA is certainly not blameless, but she doesn't see white-collar crime here. She studied organizational operations and culture for years. She's at Boston College at the time. She's now at the Columbia. She's an expert on this stuff, and she does the research for her award-winning book, Challenger Launch Decision. She says the common conception of the evil NASA middle managers causing this disaster is simply not accurate.
5: I had been doing research on how things went wrong in organizations, and I had mainly looked at a corporation and kind of developed a model about what were the organizational causes. And then I'd done a book called Uncoupling, Turning Points and Intimate Relationships. The same pattern occurred in both of those, which was a long incubation period with early warning signs that we were either... misinterpreted or ignored. When Challenger happened, the first news coming out of the investigation was, in fact, that not only were there production pressures, but there were rule violations on the eve of the launch. And it looked like corporate misconduct to me, except in a public agency. So that was how I started. After I'd spent about a year on it going deeper into the archival data I saw that no one had really violated any rules or laws. And for me, this was a linchpin. Although there were production pressures and every other things that were similar to corporate crime, that they had, in fact, conformed to all the rules. And so I had to throw everything out and really start over. That meant, you know, going more deeper in, into the technology and the history of how they made the decision and it just kind of grew from there.
0: Mr. Administrator, Matt Wald, New York Times. There are other uh, organizations that have gone through this kind of change. Most have called for some outside help. I'm tempted to ask if you've read Diane Vaughn's book or called her up uh, or if there are other a uh, specialist in safety culture who you would be bringing in at this time to help transform yourself, your agency. I appreciate that. Yes, indeed. Um, we I have read uh, Dr. Vaughan's book and uh, there have been several folks here uh, in headquarters as well as at Johnson who have been in touch with her. Dr. Michael Greenfield uh, spoke to her uh, I think initially about four months ago, three months ago, shortly after her testimony
2: before the, uh, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board's hearings. I love that clip. It's the first question asked of the NASA administrator after the Columbia report comes out. It's like, did you talk to Diane Vaughn? We talked to Diane Vaughn. NASA would get back on its feet and fly again in two years. Al McDonald headed the team that redesigned the solid rocket boosters. They had no more issues like they did on Challenger. But in 2003, a flight breaks apart upon re-entry. Shuttle Columbia. I remember watching it. I was at my off-campus house in February of 2003 just watching that tragedy, debris, you know, raced across the sky. But Diane would be involved in Columbia and she would tell us just how many similarities there were between Columbia and Challenger.
5: The parallels between Columbia and Challenger were really enormous. They had safety cuts to save money, um, the normalization of deviance of the foam. A lack of deference to engineering opinion. And it played itself out again with Columbia.
2: In the course of talking to Diane Vaughn, the author and sociologist, I realized that we had something in common. I knew she had gone to Ohio State and, and realized, uh, asked her where she grew up. She said, I grew up in Columbus, I grew up in Grandview Heights, which is exactly where I grew up. It's where I still live today. Uh, she graduated from Grandview Heights High School. I'd reached out to her without knowing that, and uh, it was just really cool. She had so many memories to share with me about Grandview. I can't wait to get a drink with her when she's in town. She talks about her high school boyfriend comes up in these Columbia investigation hearings in 2003. We talked to her about being a part of that investigation into the destruction of that vehicle and just how her high school boyfriend came up.
5: He did call, and I hadn't to talked to him for, like, it was really amazing. I was testifying before the Columbia accident investigation board and i had been working with them all summer and suddenly they're in military uniforms and i find that i'm in the midst of a huge grilling (laughs) um and they're pushing me with all kinds of new ideas i mean when we'd been out to dinner two nights before just drinking and having a good time and so i was um expecting this but the questions were really hard and so the last person to ask me a question on the panel began with, um, we know after book was published that you were asked to speak a lot of places and heard from a lot of places, but uh, what did you hear from NASA? And he knew very well that <laughs> I hadn't heard anything from NASA. And so he, I he pitched me this softball question, and I was so relieved. And I said, everybody called, even my high school boyfriend called, but NASA never called. This is, of course, what went on in all the newspapers.
2: Following Challenger, the shuttle would get back into flight. As we know, two years later, in 1988, shuttle launches again. Stephen Leckhart. they end their documentary. Uh, they talk about Columbia in the, in the epilogue, but they end it by talking about that hopeful moment where NASA gets back on its feet and we continue to make our way into the final frontier.
3: Just two years later, they returned to flight. NASA picked itself up by its bootstraps. The agency you know, overhauled out the leadership. Um, the people who had been around for years as part of the astronaut corps, corps were now more in charge um, and had a seat at the table to help make these decisions the astronauts who had trained with the seven individuals and knew the seven digitals, individuals who had perished flew on that first flight. When you realize that the family continues um, and things didn't just end there, it does make the case that they didn't just die in vain. And, I, and that was important to us because it, it that's not the whole story. Yes, we did lose that shuttle. It is a tragedy, but I think it also is about humanity and our persistence to push you know farther and farther into space. And that speaks to resiliency of the human race.
2: And Again, we want to thank Helene Noren for coming on and and sharing the the Resnick family story. And and the Resnicks, like many of the other Challenger families, very involved in the Challenger Center. Challenger Center is a a program that goes to hundreds of schools across the country, does these really in-depth STEM projects. We talk with Helene about ways that her cousin is remembered in Akron and through the work, the great work of the Challenger Center.
1: It's it's good to dwell on things like the Challenger Center and positive things that hopefully have come from this and will continue to come. You know, I know here in Akron, we have um, the Akron Public School System has a scholarship that we give every year to um, one senior boy and one senior girl who is uh, planning to go into any of the either science, technology, engineering, or math. And it's, it's a merit scholarship. It's for excellence, because that was what Judy was. You know, she was an excellent, excellent student. It's really, when we talk about a legacy for all of the heroes, not just for Judy, but um, the families, I think about three months after the tragedy, um, the Challenger Center families um, came up with the idea of of ha- having this Challenger Center. And they wanted it to be um, sort of dedicated to the educational spirit of the mission. And um, it's really grown. There are about 43 Challenger Learning Centers now across the country. They have had, I think, a total of something like 150,000 students who have um, had these wonderful experiences What we do is they teach them, um, you know, all of them, the science, technology, engineering, and math skills. And they simulate virtual missions for these kids. They're like fifth through eighth grade students. And they had, I know, two examples of the programs that they designed were a destination Mars and then a destination moon one. And they simulate the um, actual liftoff and the experiences that they would have in space and it's really designed, the whole program is designed to ex, really excite a, like a future generation of explorers and scientists. And I think that Judy would have loved something like this to be a memorial to all of them.
2: As we close today, we, we talk again with Helene Noren, cousin of our subject and the great American hero, Judy Resnick of Akron, Ohio. Helene talks about the Resnick family and Judy's sacrifice. The Resnicks were a very patriotic family, and she sees Judy's sacrifice in that same patriotic vein that was a huge part of her family's life. And we'll close by hearing from President Reagan on the night of January 28, 1986, when he addressed the nation. He was supposed to address the nation as part of State of the Union was scheduled for that night. And Ronald Reagan, man, the guy could give a speech, a made-for-TV president. He became the consoler-in-chief that night really just sums up everything about Challenger and about Judy.
1: Our family, the Resnick family, was always, always very patriotic and truly appreciated the freedom and the opportunity that America offered to them. Honestly, in our family, giving back to the country, was it was considered a duty. And I know that four of my uncles served with honor during World War II, and they were so grateful because they were able to attend college afterwards with the help of the GI Bill. And sometimes, in a way, I think that Judy's service to our country through her NASA contributions, I think that that's really an extension of the family's sense of duty to our, to our country.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union for the events of earlier today of led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. We mourn seven heroes. Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the schoolchildren of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye. And Slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God.
2: Our book recommendation, obviously, is Diane Vaughn, her book from 1996, Challenger Launch Decision. So great for Diane to join us, and the book wins awards. It's very well done, um, and it takes this kind of sociology approach to that decision. And she really debunks a lot of the common history that we've all accepted about why they decided to launch and who was at fault. But we talk with Diane just about she starts the book with the teleconference and then revisits it in the final chapter. And you can see you go through that journey of how your mind is, is changed as far as who's at fault.
5: That was a part of the discovery process. For me. First of all, I knew early on when I discovered there weren't any rule violations that I was writing a book that contradicted everything that had been published about the accident, which had been in turn been based on the commission report. When I started it over, I started with the history And I wrote through the normalization of deviance and the cultural chapters and production pressure chapters and so on. I expected that I would have a review of the eve of the launch where you could see the confusion, the surprise, the same factors affecting the normalization of deviance based on my realization that no one was going to believe this unless I built a really good argument. So the first chapter... Tells what is like the stereotyped version that everyone believed at the time. And then the, the of
2: chapter, the nasty middle managers, yeah.
5: Right. It was not a problem of individual deviance. It's a problem of the normalization of deviance, which is an organizational phenomenon. And the last chapter shows that, but the first chapter, the original stereotyped view, is the amorally calculating manager's view, which is a way that a lot of people see the world and how organizations operating.
2: And that'll do it, guys. Episode one, the season premiere is in the can. Uh, Thank you so much to our guest, Stephen Leckhardt. Go watch Challenger, The Final Flight on Netflix. Uh, You will not be sorry. It's so good. Buy Diane Vaughn's book, Challenger Launch Decision. There's a link in the show notes to do that. And again, special thanks to Helene Norin, and in memory of Judy Resnick, the Challenger 7, and, and our friend uh, who recently suddenly passed, Al McDonald. Special thanks again to friend of the show, Eric Hall, guitarist from the great Ohio band Red Wanting Blue. Looks like they might be out and playing some shows this summer. Uh, but that was the music from this episode from his side project, Tick, Tick, Tick. And you can check them out at tick, T-I-C-K, dash, tick, dash, tick, dot Uh, Thank you again so much for letting us showcase your your cool music. Thanks again to the Evergreen Podcast Network, folks. Again, go to evergreenpodcast.com. We are having a great time working with them, uh, and I think they're really going to help the show grow. So, again, go check out the history shows on there, and we'll talk more about those as the season goes on. Join us. We're doing every other Tuesday now. Uh, Every two weeks on Tuesdays, we will be launching new episodes. And next week, the week after, I should say, We'll talk about Joseph McCarthy. We'll talk about the Red Scare and McCarthyism, how it gives us lessons uh, even today. Talk about its effect on people in Ohio and Ohio's approach to that as kind of a microcosm of McCarthyism across the country. Really looking forward to that episode. have some great guests for that. We'll see you in two weeks for episode two.